I'm not saying that if someone succeeds in buying super duper duper carefully tailored advertising from Facebook to mislead some group of voters in one city about where their voting booth is, that that couldn't in principle happen. Though, by the way, there's no good quantitative evidence to support the claim that these ads make a difference. What I am saying is that when you're looking at this broad attack on democracy that shapes the legitimacy of the election in the eyes of tens or even more than 100 million people, the action is not on social media. The action is on mass media. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 8th, 2020. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. This week, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Yochai Benkler, a professor at Harvard Law School and co-director of the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. With only weeks until Election Day in the United States, you've probably noticed that there's a lot of myths and disinformation flying around on the subject of mail-in ballots. Discussions about addressing that disinformation often focus on platforms like Facebook or Twitter. But a new study by the Berkman Klein Center suggests that social media isn't the most important part of mail-in ballot disinformation campaigns. Rather, traditional mass media, like news outlets and cable news, are the main vector by which the Republican Party and the president have spread these ideas. So what's the research behind this counterintuitive finding? And what are the implications for how we think about disinformation and the media ecosystem? It's the Lawfare Podcast, October 8th. Yochai Benkler on mass media disinformation campaigns. Yochai, thank you for joining us. We wanted to start off the discussion by just giving listeners a brief review of your book, Network Propaganda, which sort of provided, a, I think what's fair to say, a counter narrative to uh, many mainstream understandings of disinformation in the 2016 election. I think it's it's reasonable to say one of the dominant understandings of misinformation, disinformation in, in 2016 is sort of that it was driven by social media, that, you know, echo chambers and algorithms drove polarization. Russian bots and propaganda took advantage of that, and that sort of affected the election. Is it fair to say that your book is sort of providing a counter-narrative to that? I think that's where we ended up. We certainly didn't start there. We have a large and substantial system that allows us to capture uh, online communications, particularly web pages, but also Twitter. We use CrowdTangle for Facebook, although not yet at the book then. Uh, so I'd say uh, we didn't start out developing a counter-narrative. We let the data lead us. I must have spent uh, two or three months digging through all the evidence on, on Russia that we could identify. Uh, but yes, I, I'd say uh, uh, when we came out and said, you know what, most of the propaganda came in the primaries from Breitbart and that media ecosystem at the top. But afterwards, Fox News really took over. That Trump, as a candidate and as a, as a major media figure, was uh, successfully achieving visibility. That the ways in which mainstream media covered Clinton purely based on scandals. We looked at, we compared coverage on mainstream media, purely 
on scandals with, with Clinton and focused on Trump's issues, even though for both sides it was negative coverage. Uh, what emerged for us was actually an image where social media was not the driver. Russians were there, obviously, everybody's uh, seen the research that they were there, but they played a secondary role. They mostly jumped on the bandwagon. They weren't really central. Facebook disinformation also seemed to have little measurable impact. But instead, what we saw when we studied the major events throughout the campaign and then the first year of the Trump presidency was how much of the confusion and disinformation was driven by these much more pedestrian uh, sources, uh, with Fox News really playing a central role, and Trump himself as a media personality, bringing the entire media ecosystem behind him. And we looked for three years, from, from the beginning of the campaign in 2015 to the end of the first year of the Trump presidency, and the pattern was quite clear and and consistent. And so talk us through a little bit of how those media networks functioned. You describe in the book that there is a right-wing media ecosystem that works very differently than center and center-left ecosystems, and that's really key to, to your findings. How, how do those differences play out? What effects do they have? Uh, so one of the things we did in the book is we applied network analysis. We created network maps of the different media sources. So we looked at all of the stories published on thousands of sites related to the presidential campaign, related to national politics. And then we developed network maps that allowed us to say, on the supply side, what do producers of media link to? Who do they take influence from, who are they influ who are they citing, and used link maps like those. We looked at Twitter and said, what sources get tweeted by the same people? We looked at Facebook and said, what outlets are shared on Facebook in the same way? And what we found consistently is not the classic polarization echo chambers story, but instead, two very different and asymmetric parts of the media ecosystem. You've got a right wing of the media ecosystem that is insular, that links to itself, that tweets about itself to itself, that shares on Facebook disproportionately, and it's very insular. And I'll talk in a minute about what the dynamics are inside there. And then you find a rest of the media ecosystem. You can't talk about the left because it included everything from the Wall Street Journal and Forbes to Mother Jones and the Daily Kost. These were not a left wing and a right wing. This was a historically conservative center-right, but professional outlets like the Wall Street Journal all the way to online activist forums were part of a single media ecosystem, all of whose attention and authority was focused in traditional professional publications, the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN. By contrast, on the right, what you got was much less linking to these professional journalism outlets. Fox News 
emerging to be the central node there, but throughout most of the election and all the primaries, Breitbart was the central node there. And sites that are really pushing bunk, the Gateway Pundit, True Pundit, the Daily Caller, those sites become very powerful in that framework. And when we looked at the competing dynamics between these two, you began to understand what was driving divergence of people who consume that right-wing media from reality. When you look at the outlets in the, quote, rest of the media ecosystem, they check each other for error. So to some extent, they're trying to draw audiences based on their political orientation to come on board. But to some extent, they're all still functioning institutionally within a uh, fact-based environment. So they're competing with each other by pointing out, you got this wrong, you got that wrong. So they're subject to competing interests, one, to try to reinforce their readers' beliefs, but the other, not to get caught out at saying something that their competitors can say, ha, you got that wrong, you have to walk it back. On the right, by contrast, the outlets also police each other, but they police each other just for partisan consistency, not for truth. So you get hammered if you say something that steps out of line with immigration is bad. But you don't get hammered if you say something that's simply untrue, like al-Shabaab is helping immigrants uh, at the Mexican border. That's the difference. And what happens on the right is what we call the propaganda feedback loop. Somebody comes up with a story that really evokes a strong emotional response, so people are clicking on it. Uh, Clinton emails, uh, Podesta engaged in, in uh, witchcraft, whatever it happens to be. Because it gets attention, people are attentive to it. As long as it's consistent with the identity narrative of the right, which is to say, Clinton bad, Trump good, or uh, Mueller corrupt, Trump innocent. Uh, it gets replicated by everyone. No one says, wait, what's the basis for this? What are you talking about? Robert Mueller and Rod Rosenstein helped Obama give, give Russia 20% of American uh, uranium. All sorts of things like that. I mean, you see on Fox, a, a Chiron running. Obama gave Russians 20% of American nuclear capability or stuff like that. But none of that matters because as long as it's our guy is winning, our guy is right, it gets replicated and there's a lot of feedback. You got the propaganda feedback where there's no correction mechanism and all of the market competitive effects are about stoking the outrage. Otherwise, you get ignored and somebody else will be read. It's almost like a, a high sugar and fat diet for media. And on the left, you get, a, or the rest, can't really talk about the left when, when you're including the AP and Reuters in that framework. And the rest, uh, there's much more of a tension between the partisan narrative getting a lot of attention and the mutual checking function. The single most consistent finding was this asymmetry between the right and the rest, the insularity of the right, and the feedback loop where what fit the party identity, what elicited outrage and therefore attention, was repeated and confirmed throughout the right wing of the media ecosystem, whereas you had much more 
friction or resistance to outraged and, and conspiratorial comments on the left and much more of an emphasis on the professional mainstream media. It doesn't mean the professional mainstream media worked well. We showed that they way overemphasized Clinton scandals and underemphasized anything related to policy with regard to Clinton. They had their own uh, failures in that framework, but the dynamic was fundamentally different. So that's really useful and helpful background and summary to your previous work. So let's move now to talking about work that you've been doing in recent months around the mail-in ballot disinformation. And so uh, starting with the basic background, it's that despite there being no evidence that there's widespread voter fraud related to mail-in ballots uh, or that such fraud could change the outcome of the election, tens of millions of Americans believe that mail-in ballot fraud is a big problem. So what's the question that you set out to answer this time? What we tried to understand in our study of mail-in voter fraud is where did this divergence in belief between Republicans and Democrats come from? What is the source and origin? It's very clear that in the 2020 election, in the midst of the pandemic, whether people believe in mail-in voting or don't is going to affect their participation rates because they may well be afraid of voting in person. And it's going to affect the perceptions of legitimacy after the election. If people think mail-in ballot is fraught with fraud, if people think that mail-in ballots will be challenged because there's a risk of fraud, they might be deterred from voting. Certainly, if they think that voter fraud is rampant and their candidate loses, that's going to go straight to the legitimacy of the election. And that would be true even if it weren't the case that the president at the debate says, I'm not going to, well, refuses to say that he'll accept the legitimacy of the election because of mail-in ballot fraud. So there's no doubt in my mind that this is the single most important disinformation campaign in the 2020 election. And the question is, where did it come from? Can we identify it as a story that was pushed by some foreign agent early on and then got captured by the president? Can we identify it as something where the president is responding to Fox News here or there? Can we identify it as uh, distributed social media trolls and actors who then push it and then it becomes a major media story? What's the source What's the dynamic? Who's pushing it? How much is it a social media driven and then mass media catches up? How much is it not? That's what we were trying to find out. I think it's probably fair to say that the social media aspect is an aspect that has dominated the conversation around this. I mean, it's sort of most neatly uh, encapsulated in the ongoing battle between platforms and the president about his tweets or posts that seek to delegitimize mail-in voting. And there's constant press stories. The New York Times just ran a story about how false information about voting by mail was the most rampant form of election misinformation. There's sort of constant concerns about, again, Russian propaganda, trolls, bots, and other fake news sort of surrounding this story. So, you know, give us the spoilers. Uh, what was the finding of your study this time? The spoilers is that social media is secondary. 
the real deal is what looks like an institutionalized campaign led by Trump through press briefings, TV interviews, and of course his Twitter handle. But his Twitter handle here isn't social media in the sense that there are all sorts of distributed people manipulating social media. It's his daily press release or multiple press releases. It's treated in the media like a daily press release. It's reported on the president said that. And of course, because of his norm breaking, it's captured. Most of the action is on mass media. It's on Fox News and Fox Business. It's on the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and all of the AP syndication stories. Everything is responding first through mass media to actions by Trump, the RNC, various other major Republican politicians, and then social media follows it. Great. So let's talk about your methodology. Uh, you, it sounds like you you sorted through just a truly enormous amount of material to to come to these findings. How did you do it? So we combined essentially three data sources. The first is Media Cloud, which is an open source platform that we've been developing with our colleagues for a long time at MIT Civic Media Lab. Now moved from there to UMass Amherst, but platform we've developed for a long time that was the basis also of our work in network propaganda called media cloud which collects about a million stories a day from thousands of outlets and we search that for any kind of reference to some textual combination of of voting mail-in ballots uh, and fraud rigged etc and that gave us a core set of about fifty-five thousand stories from across the political spectrum from March 1 until August 31 of stories about mailing ballots. And for these, we can identify how they were, how they linked to each other. We can do text analysis. We can identify how they were tweeted or how they were shared in Facebook posts. We then also use Brandwatch to extract tweets about this together with analyzing peaks in attention on Twitter and importing those stories to be part of the same large topic. And we use CrowdTangle to analyze uh, Facebook posts on public pages and groups during the same period, responding to the same commentary. So essentially, we have these three data sets that give us access to a very broad range of of online media stories and and Facebook posts and tweets. And we supplement those with qualitative research whenever the stories show that something interesting is happening using the Internet Archive looking at TV, particularly at at cable TV. So that's the set of things we're doing. Um, We do two very different kinds of things with it. The quantitative analysis is primarily network analysis. Uh, we draw network maps of what stories are linking to each other. That gives us a supply-side image of who's pushing the stories. And for this one, we actually created a synthetic source of, of Trump Twitter. Essentially, we took all of Trump's tweets and treated them as though they were a media source like the New York Times or like Fox News and saw how they were being linked to by the network. And that what popped up most clearly is how central a role he plays in the system. So he's this big 
red, as it were, because we, we identify by color the, the political quintiles from the left, center, left, center, center, right, and right, from red, from blue to red in that, in that order. Big red node in the middle of the network, right at the core of the network with the CNN, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and separate actually from the clear right wing of the network, which, which has Fox News as its core. Because he his Twitter account is is the source of the news for all of the major media, so that's one kind of map. We look at we map the Facebook public groups, and there you see very clean bipolar, partisan uh, two pole partisanship on on the major uh, Facebook accounts. But then when you actually project from that onto the media network, because seventy percent of posts link to something that's out there on the web, not just internal to Facebook. And when you look at that projection, again, on the left, it's all focused on uh, mainstream media and the least, uh, with a little bit of, of, of activism on Occupy Democrats action. On the right, depending, we, we use different measures of influence. The, the one that, that's a little more susceptible to the wacky shows Glenn Beck is particularly big and, and Diamond and Silk a little bigger and things like that. When we do something that's a little more conservative and constrained and shows less of a very, very engaged fan base, but more of a, there's a broad range of right-wing accounts that link to you, we're back to Fox and Breitbart and Real Clear Politics and the New York Post. So, so even on Facebook, where there is this clear bipolarization, when you project it on what, the, what links these people are sharing, they're mostly to the, the, the major right-wing media. We also have maps that use text analysis and tell us what sources are duplicating the same stories. And that's one of the things that fell out of the data that was very surprising was, was just how widespread syndication is and how much it affects the content of media that's trying to reach people where they are. Local TV, on, the online presence of local TV, local and regional news sites, regional newspapers, throughout the map, not just at the center, throughout the map, you see these AP influence stories, NPR influence stories, uh, USA Today network stories showing up all over the map, which again started to make it clear that something's going on here that's much more about mainstream media and much less about social media. The other thing we do is we analyze the quantity of the engagement, the quantity of the stories. And what comes out very clearly is that there's a very close relationship between spikes in attention on Facebook, spikes in attention on Twitter, and spikes in mass media stories. And so what we did was then we dove deeply with, with qualitative analysis to say, okay, on some day, April 3rd, there's a huge number of stories, there's a huge number of tweets, there's a huge number of Facebook posts or Facebook engagement. What happened on April 3rd? You start digging in and you find, here's a Trump press briefing. Here's a Trump tweet. Here's an appearance on Fox and Friends or with uh, Maria Bartiromo on, on, on Fox Business. Every time, except for one, the major peaks have this clear origin in Trump making a statements through one of these major channels, the press briefings, the TV, 
and Twitter. Um, most, particularly in the uh, as as this is ramping up in April and May, most also have some communications from the RNC, communications from his campaign communications people, from the White House communications people. Uh, from some politicians, sometimes state politicians, whether it's the Texas AG in an opinion that's widely shared on Facebook or whether it's uh, uh, the Georgia State House leader right after Trump's Fox and Friends interview. Each time you can dig into the details of how it happens, and we do that qualitatively. Uh, and what's clear every single time is that Trump and the Republican Party, and it's, I think it's really important to understand here, we have this image Again, in popular or not in mainstream press, you have this image of Trump sitting up in the middle of the night watching Fox and Friends in the morning or, or sitting up at night and watching Laura Ingram or watching uh, Hannity, and he suddenly comes up with a crazy tweet. That's not consistent with the pattern we see, which is this close alignment between a much more institutionalized parts of the Republican Party, like the RNC, like political leaders, other leaders in the Republican Party, and Trump's tweets much more plausible to think of this is obviously not exactly a disciplined team player. So, so it's not, uh, I'm not suggesting certainly our data can't support that you're talking about a planned communications campaign for every one of these tweets, but the broad alignment suggests that this is not random tweets of a charismatic individual doing his own thing, but a partisan campaign that is, at least in large part, institutionalized, not only individual. I want to pick up on that. But before we do, I just wanted to ask a methodological question that might be stupid. But, you know, there's this big controversy generally around sort of whether Facebook in particular is biased in one way or another. And tweets go viral very often showing that the top posts with the highest engagement in any given day normally almost consistently conservative news sources or individuals. But when we look at your study, um, the, the story looks pretty different. So can you explain why that difference is showing up? So it's really important. We're, we're, we're developing a separate methodological paper on how to think about crowd tangle data. The backup thing that we have to remember is that Facebook is actually very opaque in how engagement metrics are uh, generated in what kinds of maneuvers they're, they're susceptible to. We've struggled quite a bit with trying to understand what's real and what's inauthentic, how much of Facebook engagement metrics based on CrowdTangle are uh, susceptible to manipulation. What we ended up doing in the report is pairing two kinds of metrics. The first is the one that everybody uses, total raw engagements. Uh, and again, though, one of the things that we find is that when you do that, not at the individual story level, comparing the top story here versus the top story there, but you look at some period, like a month, let alone the whole period, the influence looks very different. It's not as though when you look at all of August, what pops out is one crazy site. It's true that individual stories might have very high raw engagement metrics. The problem with that is that those don't actually fit anything with regard to visitor statistics when you look at sites based on just their visitor statistics. 
So something fishy with some of these players, particularly uh, you see it on the right, something fishy is happening with the engagement numbers. We're not quite sure. So instead, what we did was we used two different measures and we looked at the peaks by both of them. One measure is total engagements. That's the same measure that all of these uh, stories and tweets about how crazy sites on Facebook are. And for the voter fraud or mail-in voter fraud topic, this results in one particularly wacky outlier, Analyzing America, popping up as really very big. Very hard to credit that it's really as influential because it gets not that much online traffic. And that in, in some senses, that's almost a red flag that the metric is showing something not real. But you do get more visibility to somebody like Glenn Beck or to Diamond and Silk than to Breitbart or Fox, which again is a little fishy, but at least not crazy impossible. But then we also complement it with a very different kind of measure, which is how many different Facebook groups link to a story. So not do you have a bunch of people who may be crazy fans or may be in authentic accounts pressing share, 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 which is what you get in order to get these big raw engagements. But was this shared by only one intense Facebook group or was it shared by 20? Was it shared by 70 posts, different posts, or just lots of engagements on one? And when we organize it more by this network metric than by just raw engagement that CrowdTangle spits out, you see a much more plausible map that looks a lot more like the Twitter map and a lot more like the open web map, which again is at least some indication that we're capturing something real and not something nonsense. And so if you look at the map, based on how many different Facebook posts and accounts link to a particular story and aggregate those over a month or over the entire period, the network looks very similar, broadly speaking, to both the Twitter and the open web linking maps. You have these two big chunks. You've got Breitbart, New York Post, and Fox News anchoring the right. You've got New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, NBC News, interestingly, does very well by all metrics on, on Facebook. On the left, much more. So the, the actual accounts are very bipolar. And by their names, they're very aggressive. But the things they link to on the web are actually not quite as crazy. So, so I think there's a lot we don't know about just how crazy the practice on Facebook is. I think the entire research community needs to be much more careful about taking purely raw engagement metrics from Facebook and imagining that that's the whole story. But we're going to need better access to, to what it is that Facebook actually does with engagements, how easy it is to game those to be more confident. But But overall, I'd say... When we try to use more than one measure and when we try to be a little more cautious, the image seems a lot less wacky than the standard story. That's fascinating. So to, to turn back to the sort of the substance of your findings, 
So it's not just the president tweeting in the early hours of the morning, as you say, that's responsible for driving these spikes of attention. At the same time, it's also clear that, of course, Trump's tweets do get engagement and do drive attention in news cycles. So one of the biggest controversies about the president's tweeting regarding the election and mail-in voting has been whether platforms like Facebook or Twitter should have deplatformed him, removed his account, removed the claims about mail-in ballots from social media, what does your study say about this question? Do you think that would have made a difference in light of what you found? I doubt very much that it would have made a difference. One of the biggest spikes is when Twitter has the temerity to slap a fact check on one of Trump's tweets, and that explodes. One of the top, one of the highest peaks in the entire six months period is when everybody jumps on the fact that Twitter uh, slapped a fact check on it. Again, I. I don't want to say that the social media platforms, that our study proves that social media platforms don't matter at all, that they shouldn't be doing anything. That's obviously not the claim. But the obsession with whether Twitter does or doesn't slap a fact check, with whether Facebook's fact check on the on the president's uh, Facebook post is or isn't as, as aggressive and in your face as Twitter's, that's not going to influence one iota. The 30% of Americans, particularly middle-aged Americans, who aren't that politically engaged, who don't get their news online, they get it from local TV, they get it from ABC, CBS, and NBC, maybe they get it from CNN, maybe they get it from their local paper that they trust and they sometimes see online. That's where you're really have persuadables. The people who watch Fox News, listen to talk radio, and obsessively refresh Trump 2020 Facebook page, they're not going to be persuaded by a fact check. And the people who read the New York Times, listen to NPR, or watch Rachel Maddow, don't need Facebook fact checks on, on Trump's stuff in order to be persuaded that this is a disinformation campaign. The only people who matter the only people who can sway the future of American democracy are this large swath, based on surveys, 20, 30 percent, who don't want to obsessively watch cable TV. Now, all of us who actually study this, we are the obsessive. So, of course, we think that's where everything happened. We are the ones who use social media, at least Twitter. Uh, and study social media, uh, Facebook. We're the ones who use these platforms, and we think that's where everybody gets their news. This is not what the survey evidence suggests. The survey evidence suggests that the people who are the least connected politically, the least committed, are the most disgusted by the whole process and alienated from it, are not getting the news from there. They're getting it from TV. They're getting it from, from radio. And the question is how does Trump communicate to those outlets? And for that, you can fact check or not. If you deplatform him, you don't think he'll have a daily press briefing. And because it's the president saying it, the daily press briefing uh, will matter. He won't issue press releases. If he has a press release instead of a tweet that says, all capped, rigged election, delay the election, you think it won't draw coverage from NBC or CBS? It won't end up on the local news station? That's nonsense. It's just nonsense. So... Sure, some fact-checking on social media is fine. But when you have the sitting president and the party that controls the Senate running a campaign, 
that is driven by elites and communicated by mass media. The obsessive focus on social media is a distraction. I'm not saying that Facebook or Twitter or more importantly, Gab or something like that can be used to mobilize radicalist, radical, violent protest or intimidation. I'm not saying that. For purposes of organizing uh, radical groups that fly be below the radar for radicalizing individuals, that certainly is not going to happen through mass media. I'm not saying that if someone succeeds in buying super duper duper carefully tailored advertising from Facebook to mislead some group of voters in one city about where their voting booth is, that that couldn't in principle happen. Though, by the way, there's no good quantitative evidence to support the claim that these ads make a difference. What I am saying is that when you're looking at this broad attack on democracy that shapes the legitimacy of the election in the eyes of tens or even more than 100 million people, the action is not on social media. The action is on mass media. And the mechanism is not distributed in authentic actors using the algorithms and filters of the networks to make something salient. It is the same old story of the president using press releases, and his Twitter account is just press releases, to move mass media. And unfortunately, throughout much of the period we looked at, although it started getting better by August, mass media steps back and does its uh, balance. It's a partisan debate. Democrats say this, Republicans say this, rather than the president falsely stated that the Republican Party's disinformation campaign about voter fraud continues. That's what the audience needs to read and hear if we're going to avoid helping, facilitating, and legitimating this disinformation campaign that the president and his party have been mounting against the legitimacy of the 2020 presidential election. So part of this story, as you write in the in the paper, is practices in professional journalism, not on the right, that inadvertently exacerbate this sort of flow of bad information. Uh, you write about how there's a sort of a tendency to think, you know, if the president said it, it's news. There's a tendency to sort of seek things that make good headlines. And then there's also this desire to sort of avoid the appearance of taking a side, this desire for, for balance, for neutrality. I was struck, you know, in, in network propaganda, you also write about failures of professional journalism to grapple with this kind of asymmetry of radicalization and polarization in media. Are the, the, the sort of the failures, the difficulties in, in professional journalism that you describe in this report on, on the 2020 election the same as the failures you found in, in network propaganda? Has the dynamics of the media environment changed at all? And I mean, has the press learned anything? So there's a bit of improvement, not a bit, there's a good bit of improvement by August. I'd say as of April, May, and we offer some examples in the paper, uh, as of April, May, particularly the AP and the syndicated stories still took very much of one of two versions. One was social media actors are circulating disinformation about voter fraud. And then in paragraph five, 
the president has reaff has 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 affirmed these or or supported these instead of rever reversing. But again, that's because that's what everybody believed. And and again, our our study in that regard, as you say, is a little bit turns the the what has become the conventional wisdom on its head. By August, you saw more, particularly from the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN, gradually even from the AP, that the title and the lead already start to say the president falsely said that uh, the president, because he's concerned about mail-in voting, increasing participation, said this falsely, and, and putting up the consensus, academic and journalistic, investigation that voter fraud is not non-existent but but not a real threat to the electoral outcome uh, first but when we looked at april may it was very clear that very little had been learned from the failures of traditional media in the 2016 election and the two framings were either uh, social media and maybe Russians are pushing disinformation about voter fraud, and the president seems to also agree to it. Or the other was Republicans say voter fraud is the problem, Democrats say voter fraud is not a problem, as though there is no actual independent fact of the matter based on at least our best academic and journalistic investigative knowledge. And, and by the way, the partisan frame is exactly the one that Trump wants. He doesn't need to persuade Democrats that voter fraud is real on mail. He needs to confuse the center, the disaffected, this large segment in the middle of the population. He needs to confuse them about whether or not voter fraud is an issue with mail-in balloting. Because they're the ones whom he needs to capture for purposes of the question of the questioning the legitimacy of the election or not. So as long as, say, the Associated Press says Democrats say this, Republicans say this, that middle group thinks there's no truth of the matter. It's like reporting on climate change. Some scientists say this, other scientists say that, the way it was until the mid uh-ohs. And that's just false because it gives a false impression and it confuses particularly the most persuadable people in the middle. And so that happened a lot. One of those two things, either diverting attention to, to social media or Russians or showing uh, Democrats say this, Republicans say that false balance. We still see some of that in August, but it gets better. And I think and impressionistically, because we closed the study on August 31st, but impressionistically, I think that may be changing for the better, not only in, in the very top national media, but also in, in media that, that use more syndicated stories. But the truth is, the conclusion of our report is that the people who are the most important, the most important bulwark against the disinformation campaign against mail-in ballot voter fraud are the editors and journalists of these media that speak to local audiences, speak to the disaffected, speak to the low engagement, low interest, weekly political citizens and residents of America. Those are the media, those are the editors and journalists who can 
fall once again for the same tricks or can take it as their role to educate their audiences that they're under attack and that they need to understand that they're under attack and that and and that they need to understand what the truth of the matter is uh, and and those people unsung non-tech largely ignored in the questions of disinformation to my taste on this core question of voter fraud are much more important than what Facebook and Twitter do or don't do with their fact-checking practices. Can we talk a little bit more explicitly about the Russians then? Because you've just suggested, and I think you suggest in your paper, that there's like that there's a danger in focusing on that foreign threat too much. And I just would like you to talk a little bit more about what is the problem with being hypervigilant or encouraging people to be hypervigilant about Russian trolls or Russian disinformation and, you know, to further play devil's advocate, isn't perhaps that hypervigilance one of the reasons why it's maybe not such a big problem? And also, you know, the fact that there is so much disinformation out there right now could be part of the reason why the Russian threat isn't as bad. But in the absence of that, it it could be extremely potent. You know, in in one sense, it it could be quite easy to earn a paycheck as a Russian troll right now, uh, because all you have to do is sort of retweet uh, the, the, the disinformation that is out there from a lot of the sources that you've just mentioned. So can you talk a little bit more about why it's counterproductive to be so concerned about that threat? Yeah. Look, I'll tell you the truth. Writing the chapter on Russian disinformation in the book, in Network Propaganda, that was the hardest chapter. I spent months looking under the bed and saying, yeah, it might actually be that they flipped it. But then we just went episode by episode. We looked at emails. We looked at the specific stories. uh, We looked at all of the reports that were made public of, of specific instances, specific Facebook posts. We looked at the things that were alleged in the Mueller indictment of the IRA. We, we looked at stuff that came out of the House investigation. What are these things? Not what are they in the sense of are they from Russians? Because we basically, of course, that's that they are. It's did they matter? How do we know whether they matter or not? And again and again, what we saw was someone else had started a rumor or a conspiracy. Often Trump sometimes Hannity or whatever else it was. And then maybe three or four days into the controversy, suddenly you'd get one of these uh, Russian operations that end up in the indictment or in the, or in the House report. We found one specific, probably not that important story that we'd say, yeah, this one's probably a Russian information operation about uh, John Podesta participating in some satanic ritual that one looked like it smelled like it actually did come and, and then go into the, the ecosystem from Russians. But the bottom line is you really have to understand whether the goal of Russian information operations in America is to achieve the adoption of certain beliefs like we do sometimes in the operation around the Russian Olympics uh, uh, drug testing or, or, or the white helmets in Syria. There are some studies that are very good case studies where you say, here's a specific fact they want to get across, and you see the operation, and it succeeds or it doesn't succeed, but you see the operation. Those are 
Those are real, they're specific facts. As opposed to if the target overall is to reduce confidence in the American public in its electoral process, get a, a much more diffuse, as Peter Pomerantsev put it a few years ago, uh, nothing is true and everything is possible kind of attitude toward electoral politics. And if that's your primary goal, then the task of the defender is very different than if you're trying to get a particular fact or particular narrative across. Because in order to achieve the confusion associated with nothing is true and everything is possible, you don't actually have to influence anyone's views on anything. You have to be seen often enough, and this is critical, you have to be seen often enough to be intervening, to raise doubts about the authenticity of what's going on. If you do it fully not caught, then we don't know that it's you. You haven't communicated that you're messing with us. You have to communicate and be seen to be messing with us. And then whether you achieve anything or not is entirely beside the point. Now, if that's what's going on, and achieving that, that nothing is true and everything is possible attitude is actually quite consistent with what we're seeing Russian propaganda do both at home and in the near periphery since 2012, if that's what you're trying to do, then the American media focus on Russian propaganda just directly plays into the strategy. The more Americans there are who believe that Russians are the ones who are shaping our media environment, the more Americans there are who don't know what to believe and don't know who to believe. Now, if it were true that, in fact, lots and lots of our media environment was shaped by Russians, we would need to go it. We would need to go on the offensive. We would need to defend. We would need to do all sorts of things. That's correct. But if it's not, if all you're getting is occasional appearances that produce a Petyomkin village of disinformation so that you pass by and say, oh, look, the Russians are coming. The Russians are coming. You can't trust anything. They've done their job. And, and the first thing we need to do is to diagnose which one of these propaganda campaigns we're faced with. And everything I've seen for the last four years is that the campaign we're, being fa we're faced with is one in which when we sit back and say the same surveys that show that over half of Republicans believe that Democrats will steal the election through voter fraud, that, that, I'm sorry, that's an exaggeration. Over half believe that mail-in ballots involve a major risk of voter fraud. Uh, but no, 55% actually in a different poll, we also cite that, of Republicans responding to a slightly different poll in August say that they think that the most likely source of election interference and rigging uh, are Democrats. But among Democrats, more respondents say that Russia or China or some other foreign country is going to interfere with the election than those who think Trump will. If the purpose is to get Democrats to not trust the process or to get Americans to not trust the process, then the continued obsession with saying the Russians are doing it 
just amplifies their campaign. It's completely playing into their hands. That's why I'm so insistent on evidence of actual impact. Because as long as we raise what could be, and as long as we look at specific anecdotes where we found here, the Russians are crying, but we don't limit ourselves to cases where we can show actual impact on belief or action in the United States at a population scale, we are just instruments of Russian disinformation instead of opponents. And that's a profound mistake. So to pick up on the point you made earlier about a place where social media might actually be a big problem, there's the sort of this question of radicalization um, of extremists or incitement of violence. This has obviously become a big concern on a lot of levels in the U.S., not only with recent events, but also potential instability around calling the election and the aftermath of the election. Can you talk a little bit about what role you see social media as playing here and, and why or whether it's different to the disinformation we've talked about so far? Yeah, look, there's a huge difference between how you shape public opinion as public opinion, how you influence tens of millions of people, how you shape the zeitgeist of a moment and how you reach the one or five or 50 people you need to reach in order to start a terrorist campaign. That you can do by email and by, and by, and by uh, notes. And certainly that you can do by platforms. So nothing in, my, in our research tries to assess the role or, or, or reject or, or, or confirm the role of YouTube rabbit holes or, or Facebook groups or much less any other off, off the major platforms in creating these individual radicalization events where somebody will look at something and look at something and look at something, pick up a gun and go shoot, shoot up a church or a synagogue or, or, or go stand armed on the streets of Kenosha and, and shoot someone. Those clearly are not going to be, well, I'm saying clearly not going to be mass media events, except when you have the president standing in front of the debate and mobilizing um, uh, his supporters to go stand at balloting places and, and intimidate or telling uh, proud boys uh, stand back and stand by. So, so there are mass media radicalization events as well. Um, and we can't ignore if that if it comes from the top, it comes from the top. And, and, and we know what parties use paramilitary supporters to intimidate their supporters. But these kind of background non-mass media, because all you need to do is affect relatively small and discrete populations or coordinate, they are excellent media for completely legitimate organization. And they're also effective media for illegitimate and dangerous organization. And nothing in what we've done should be, should be seen as, as refuting or seeking to refute or test uh, that. For that, you need a completely different kind of event study. You need to look at the radicals themselves. You need to see what they're seeing. You need to look at the radicalization process of people who we know are part of domestic terrorist groups. And there, I think the evidence is, is clear that, that they do use online means. Um, not all of them 
for most of them not necessarily subject to, to academic research, at least uh, because of ethical concerns with covering your identity as a researcher. Uh, those are very real. Those are a real concern. Those are things that, that some of the platforms might, in fact, be able to, to help with. And I do want to emphasize, I'm not rejecting that at all. So to close out, I'd like to ask you sort of a bit of a bigger picture question. In 2006, you wrote a book called The Wealth of Networks, which I think is, is fair to say was quite optimistic about the power of the internet to enhance individual freedom and political discourse. And you've gone from that to writing a book uh, in 2018, co-authoring a book in 2018 called Network Propaganda. Um, and then one of your findings of the the most recent study was that the sort of the co-optation of the right-wing media ecosystem by the president and the Republican Party was even worse than it was uh, in, in 2016. Um, and so it's kind of hard not to feel a bit pessimistic about the the current information ecosystem and sort of see that trend perhaps in in your work do you feel pessimistic do you have any of that residual optimism left and sort of you know what's your book in 2030 going to be called based on this trend <laughs> so a couple of different things i did not see myself as optimistic in 2006 i had been writing for a decade that there are possibilities in this technology, that there are amazing organizing efforts to do things from producing software and encyclopedia to organizing politically, but that these were under constant attack from large-scale organizations. I, I, I mean, it's funny. Do I rattle off articles that made it, that, that made up the book, the battle over the institutional ecology of the digital environment, blah, blah, blah. There, there, there's a battle. The, the whole frame of the wealth of networks was there's a battle over how the digital environment will structure information production. There's more concentrated. There's strong power moves. There are efforts to control it. There are efforts to distribute it. At that moment, in 2006, when you looked around at the way uh, free software had taken over the core infrastructure, when you looked at how Wikipedia became the go-to encyclopedia, it was reasonable to say it's not crazy to imagine that we could have a much more decentralized world. I think what we saw, and I wrote a good bit about this in the last few years here and there, what we saw with the introduction of the smartphone, cloud computing, the app environment and proprietary operating systems were new points of control interjected below and above the open points I identified there. And the battle continued with new points of leverage. So I think I was realistic then looking at the evidence with some moderate degree of optimism. I think I'm now looking at the evidence focused on the downsides. But remember, what I'm saying is it turns out that mass media continue to be critically important and are being used in ways that are destructive of our democracy. Am I pessimistic or optimistic? Look, we today have a national debate over police shooting of black men and women thanks to distributed media production by all the people who captured the videos in real time that reporters were never there to capture, who were able to counter the narrative of police that everything's fine, nothing to see here, folks, complemented 
by the incredible real world protests of the Black Lives Matter movement in the real world. If that's not an example of a network public sphere forcing an elite media and, uh, and political elite dominate framework to actually pay attention to a dramatic social problem, I don't know what is. Now, in the same way, the right wing is using it. The fringe right wing is using it, is, un is unfortunate for democracy on a substantive human rights basis, but is not unfortunate in the sense that in the mass media environment, they were shut up and shut down. And now they can find each other. So, so there's a real conflict there. But I think the biggest change for me in the last 15 years, and if you ask me what I would be writing about in 2030, is understanding that it's not media that drives social anger and social cohesion. It's the actual structure of people's daily lives. The fundamental thing we've seen in the last 40 years is a small alliance of professional and managerial class leaders, Democrats and Republicans, adopting a political framework that has left the overwhelming majority of Americans with no economic returns, with deep distrust in a system that actually, in fact, has not been working for them. And that's true of white Americans. It's true of black Americans. It's true of immigrants. It's true of um, uh, native born. And as long as you have a society that is that has such a large role for extractive practices and is so constrained in its ability to give most people what they need, which is some degree of economic security, some degree of dignity, you're not going to get stabilization. So most of what I'm focusing on when I'm not attracted to, to the disinformation question is trying to understand this basic question of why it is that some societies are able to build reasonably stable, reasonably equitable, not perfect, but reasonably equitable economic and social systems and where we've gone wrong with, with creating a society with such a high concentration of wealth and such widespread economic and personal insecurity. And I think unless we focus on solving those problems, solving the media questions will never actually reach at, at, the, at the foundation of the problem. All right. On that note, uh, Jochai Pinkler, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to The Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.